almost too much for us. Just a lot happening today. You know, this has been quite an interesting week, obviously, those of you who've been here in the building and all the things that have happened here this week. And uh, I had a sense of the Lord's direction for this morning's service a couple weeks ago, and, and but I knew all that was going to be happening this morning, and I thought, wow, this just doesn't fit. You know, I felt like, okay, we've got the VBS. I knew we'd have Don and Yuri here. I knew that we would be saying our uh, farewells to Dave and Patty. And I couldn't get away from this, and it's almost as if the Lord said, you know, you think this has nothing to do with it? It has everything to do with what happens here this morning because it's the center. It's the center. And before I uh, begin to uh, get into the message, I just want to say how much it blessed me to see all of our TCF people come together and do what we did this past week. It is an amazing thing to witness uh, a church coming together to do the things that we were able to accomplish this week. It's quite a happening place. And I'll tell you what, if you've never been part of a VBS and maybe you just feel like you can't be for one reason or another, you want to come by sometime between 9 and noon just to see this place it is a happening place. You want to see what happens. So, Let me tell you a story about a teacher who was testing the children in her Sunday school class to see if they really understood an important concept, Okay, that salvation is by grace through faith. It's not of ourselves. It's not by works. So she asked them a question. She said, if I sold my house and I sold my car and had a big garage sale and gave all my money to the church, would that get me into the heaven? And the kids said, no. If I cleaned the church every day and I mowed the yard and I kept everything neat and tidy, would that get me into heaven? And the answer, of course, the kids said, no. Well, the teacher was smiling now. She said, well, you know, maybe they really do get this concept. Well, then, if I was kind to animals and I gave candy to all the kids and I love my husband, would that get me into heaven? And again, they all shouted, no. Well, then, how can I get into heaven? And a five-year-old boy raised his hand and he shouted out, you got to be dead. truth there, right? But I don't think that's the answer she was looking for. <laughs> we know that it's only, only through the cross of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, our only hope that we can share eternity with our Maker. In fact, the cross is at the center, as I noticed a moment ago, the cross is at the center of human history. Pastor and author uh, C.J. Mahaney wrote this. The cross of Christ is the heart of the Christian faith and the pivot point of history. It's simple enough for a child to grasp, yet no amount of study or meditation can comprehend its full wonder and significance. I'll draw several thoughts from his great little book, The Cross-Centered Life, as we move along this morning. And this is the thought that kind of helped me see that yes, what I was supposed to preach this morning was in fact what I was supposed to preach because it's the foundation for everything we do. It's at the center. It's the crux, if you will. So today, even realizing that there's no amount of study or meditation that would help us fully comprehend the wonder, the amazing grace, the glory of the cross of Jesus, we're nevertheless going to focus on the cross because it's the center of our faith. And it's a theme about which we should literally spend our lifetime unpacking 
its meaning. This is not just a theme for Holy Week. We always focus on the cross during Holy Week and maybe some other times, but this should be an everyday theme for the believer in Christ. The gospel, the cross, is not just what saves us. And that alone, that alone, the fact that the cross is what saves us should be enough for wonder, should be enough for continual meditation. But the same cross that saves us, the same gospel that makes a way for us into eternal life is also the gospel that changes us day by day, more and more into the image and likeness of Christ, something that theologians call sanctification. It's interesting to me that the definition of the word crux, part of our sermon title this morning, the crux is the basic, central, or critical point or feature, as in the crux of the matter. You may have heard that phrase, or the crux of an argument. But the word is from the Latin word for stake, scaffold, or cross. Yes, the same kind of cross that Jesus died on. So the same word that we use in some of our everyday conversation to indicate the central or the critical point is derived from the reality of the central or critical point, the main thing of our faith. So even though when you understand the word's origin, it might be redundant to say so, the cross is the crux of our faith, isn't it? Again, it's the main thing. It's the most important thing. The Apostle Paul wrote this, in case we didn't get this idea, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 3. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. So if it's the main thing, if it's something we must ponder more than once a year during Holy Week or on Good Friday, even though we can only scratch the surface of its meaning, as we'll attempt to do this morning, we're still going to take our time and look at this. There are no perfect analogies of the sacrifice that Jesus made for us on the cross. We've all heard some good stories, however, some stories that are true and some stories that reflect some aspects of the cross, which might help us more fully grasp its meaning and purpose. So I want to tell you three different stories, short stories, which offer an analogy, an illustration of the gospel and the sacrifice of Christ. But I also want you to listen carefully to these stories and see if you can tell where these stories fall short. Because ultimately, any analogy, any story, any illustration that we could come up with falls short of the complete picture of what happened on that first day that we now call Good Friday. Perhaps by thinking through these stories and considering where they don't capture the full picture of what Scripture teaches us about the cross, we can gain even more understanding and do what the cross was designed to do ultimately, and that's give glory to God. There's one story you may have heard. I'd heard it before as I was researching this and thinking about this, but... Uh, as nearly as I can tell, this is not a true story, even though I've heard people present it as though this actually happened. But I can't find any proof. I did some research and can't find any proof that this story actually happened. So keep it in mind, okay? This is a story. It's just an illustration. It's about a father and a son. And the father was a bridge keeper of a drawbridge over a river. And most of the time, the bridge was up. 
and it allowed ships to pass through on the river below. The bridge keeper's job was to lower the bridge at very specific times of the day when trains were scheduled to come through on that bridge, crossing over the bridge. <clears throat> so one day he was in the control tower with his four-year-old son, and he kind of lost track of the time. And he noted all of a sudden there's the sound of a train whistle in the distance. And he needed to act quickly. He looked at his watch and he said, hey, it's time for this train to come through. And he did. So he turned the mechanism to put the bridge back into the position for the train to cross. Well, the bridge came down, but to his horror, the locking control didn't work. And if the bridge was not securely in position, it would cause the train to jump the track and the train would go crashing in the river. And this train was a train that carried a lot of passengers, many, many people aboard this train. So he left the control tower, said to his son, stay put, and hurried across the bridge to where there was a lever that he could go and lock the mechanism manually. And so the bridge was safely lowered into place, and he started to go to this. And he would have to hang on to this lever tightly as the train crossed. Well, then, coming across the bridge from the direction of the tower, he heard a sound that made his blood run cold. Daddy, Daddy, where are you? His four-year-old son was crossing the bridge to look for him, even though he told his son to stay put. How many of us have four-year-olds that always do what we tell them? The father almost left his lever to snatch up his son and carry him to safety. But he realized that to get back to the lever in time, he had to choose. He had to make a choice. He couldn't get back to the lever in time if he saved his son. So either many people on the train or his own son must die. He took just a moment to make his decision, and the train sped safely and swiftly on its way. And no one aboard that train was even aware of the tiny broken body that was tossed into the river by the rushing train. Pretty sobering story, especially when I've I, I actually heard that story and somebody said it was true. If it was really true, it's sobering. But even just thinking about the conundrum that this father was in, we can see in this illustration a, a clear reflection, though, of the gospel story, can't we? A father sacrificing the life of his son so that many would live. Here's one that's a little less serious, but still a good illustration. Uh, this is just a story and not necessarily true. It's about a small boy who was constantly coming home late from school, and his parents were continually challenging him, you need to be home on time, you need to be home on time. And so they warned him one day, you better be home on time this afternoon, but nevertheless he arrived later than ever, and his mother met him at the door and said nothing. At dinner that night, the boy looked down at the plate that they'd set in front of him, and there was a slice of bread and a glass of water. He looked at his father's plate full of food, and then at his father, but his father remained silent. Now, the boy was crushed, okay? Bread and water? Wow. The father waited for the full impact to sink in. And then he quietly took the boy's plate and placed it in front of himself. He took his own plate of meat and potatoes and all the other good stuff on that plate, and he put it in front of the boy, and he smiled at his son. When that boy grew to be a man, he said, All my life I've known what God is like by what my father did that night. So then again, we see a, that's, a, that's a good story too, isn't it? We see the gospel truth that Christ took the punishment that we deserve. So there's an illustration as well. Stories, the last one I want to talk about is actually one that's true. 
This one's from a book called Through the Valley of the Kwai. It was published in 1962, and it was later made into a movie called To End All Wars. Anybody seen that movie, To End All Wars? Nobody's seen that, okay? I almost included a clip from the movie. It's a little disturbing, so I decided not to. But the story itself is pretty intense all by itself. In World War II, there was a man named Ernest Gordon, and he was a British captive in a Japanese prison camp by the River Kwai in Burma, where the POWs were forced to build a railroad. He describes one occasion when at the end of a workday, the tools were counted before the, re the prisoners returned to their quarters. And there was a guard said, hey, there's a shovel missing. And he began to rant and he began to rave and shout, demanding to know which prisoner had stolen it. He worked himself into a parano paranoid fury and he ordered whoever was guilty to step forward and take your punishment. And no one did. And so the guard shouted, all die, all die. And he raised his rifle and pointed it at all the prisoners. He was going to shoot all of them. At that moment, one man stepped forward. Standing at attention, he calmly declared, I did it. And the Japanese guard immediately beat him to death. He clubbed him to death. And as his friends carried away his lifeless body, the shovels in the tool shed were recounted only to reveal that there was not a missing shovel. The shovel wasn't missing. So imagine if you can, the true story, imagine if you can the impact on the other prisoners who witnessed what happened here, the effect on those prisoners of this man's substitutionary sacrifice for them. It's a profound and very moving story of sacrifice and heroism. Yet, it falls short of being a fully adequate illustration of the substitutionary sacrifice of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Not because there's anything wrong with the stories in and of themselves, they're helpful to a point, but because there is no adequate illustration. Think about these three stories, and again, there's nothing wrong with them, but we can't expect them to fully illustrate Jesus' sacrifice, even though they can be meaningful to some degree. But each of them misses important things in the biblical realities of Jesus' sacrifice. Why don't they tell the whole story? Well, in the story of the son on the train track, think of this. Jesus didn't die because of an accident that God could not control. Jesus didn't die by accident. God didn't forget when the train was coming through. Okay? Jesus died as God's free choice made before the beginning of time. God didn't choose to have Jesus crucified because of an unforeseen circumstance. It was fully foreseen. He knew what was coming, and it was completely planned for down to the smallest details. Peter, the Apostle Peter, said as much in a sermon recorded in Acts chapter 2 where he said, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Paul wrote this about God's plan in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 7, but we impart a secret 
and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. Timothy wrote something similar. He talked about God who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus, again, before the ages began. And again, we read Peter in his first epistle. Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. What a marvelous gospel we have, folks. So Peter was clear that the Jews were complicit in Jesus' death, and Peter, Paul, and Timothy were all just as clear that there was a definite plan, and the plan was God's plan. Another thing missing with all three stories is that the sacrifice that Jesus made for us is not made by a fellow sinner. It wasn't a sacrifice by a fellow sinner like the man who was killed by the angry prison guard or the dad taking the boy's meager meal in his son's place. If we have any doubt about that, we can read in Hebrews chapter 4, beginning with verse 14, Since then we have a great high priest, referring to Jesus, of course, who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Another thing that these stories sell short is that Jesus didn't die because someone made a mistake in counting shovels. In our case, and this is where we get the subhead of this morning's message, the shovel really is missing. We really are guilty. We really do deserve the punishment that Jesus took on our behalf. All of us, all of us, all of us without exception. This is made very, very clear in Romans 3 where it says, beginning in verse 10, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. Okay, as if that's not enough, he goes on to say, no one understands, no one seeks for God. You get a, sensing a trend here? No one, no one, no one. Verse 12, all have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. And in case we still don't get it, no one does good, not even one. And then to reiterate just a few verses later in uh, verse 23, this is the one that all of us memorize, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so though we could find other shortcomings with all of these, the three stories that I just told you, at fully illustrating Jesus' sacrifice, let me mention one more. Jesus was not punished due to God's cruelty. Some theologians have actually criticized the idea of Jesus being our substitute, and they've called it divine child abuse. Yet Scripture is clear that God the Son, as Jesus, knew what forgiveness of sin required. Jesus knew what it required. He willingly took our sin upon himself, and he absorbed God's righteous wrath. 
the wrath that we, the the wrath that I so richly deserve. Isaiah 53, chapter 6, tells us, written prophetically of Jesus, and all we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So let's th- let this idea soak in for a minute and consider it even more as we read what Paul wrote to the Romans in chapter 5, beginning with verse 6. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. We also read that on the night of his crucifixion, Jesus withdrew from them. It says in Luke chapter 22, about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. So Jesus was very well aware of what was coming. The cup that he referred to in the garden was not just the physical agony of the crucifixion. And that was plenty. And we've rehearsed that. It was the wrath of God, not just the physical agony of the crucifixion, but the wrath of God, the wrath that you deserve, the wrath that I deserve, but he bore in our place as our substitute. He took it on willingly. He said to God the Father, not my will, but yours be done. So even the biblical story of Abraham offering up his son to Isaac is not a complete or perfect analogy. Of course, it's not meant to be. God asked Abraham to do it. Abraham didn't offer to do it. And Abraham was not required even to complete the act. Isaac was not the perfect sacrifice, completely without sin, as was Jesus. And more so, Isaac didn't choose to sacrifice himself. He was being obedient to his father, Abraham. So the point here, the point here is that the cross, the crux of the gospel, the crux of our faith, is so rich in meaning that there is no adequate illustration. There's no adequate analogy, even though some of these things are helpful. We can only hope with some of these illustrations, some of these stories, to understand one more little nuance of this centerpiece of our faith. That's why the cross must be an everyday thought with us, not for the sake of making us feel guilty, Okay, that's not what this is about. It's not about what a miserable sinner I am. I am, okay? It's not about that. If we have unconfessed sin, we should feel guilty, but guilty for only as long as it takes us to repent, receive God's forgiveness through Christ, and then rejoice because in Christ we are no longer guilty anyway. We should regularly rejoice in God's forgiveness. And if we rejoice in God's forgiveness, we cannot help but remember 
the cross. It is absolutely inseparable from our forgiveness. We should rejoice in that more than any other thing, even good things in our lives. Jesus said as much in Luke chapter 10 when several of his disciples returned after what we might describe as a very successful ministry trip. They were pretty excited about what had happened because they said, they came back and said to Jesus, even the demons are subject to us in your name. So you can picture what happened, right? They confronted demons. They confronted demon-possessed people, no doubt cast demons out of demon-possessed people. And of course that was exciting. We get that, right? But how did Jesus respond to that excitement? He reminded them of something even more exciting in Luke chapter 10, verse 20. Do not rejoice in this, he said, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Their names were written in heaven because of the cross of Christ, the crux of their faith. And that's what Jesus instructed his followers to rejoice in. Your names are written in heaven. So even when we're involved in the Lord's work, even when we're doing his will, even when we're serving him, we can have a lot of important things in our lives, but we can only have one priority. What's ours? What's at the top of our list of important things? Second to none. Well, we've already learned what the Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, told the Corinthians should be at the top of their list, and it should be at the top of our list too. 1 Corinthians 15.3, excuse me. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. First importance, he said. Top priority, right? Top of our list of the most important things. Christ died for our sins. He died for our sins on the cross. Paul is pointing out that one transcendent truth that should define our lives. It's the main thing, folks. It's the crux. Nothing else. Even all the good biblical things, okay? Nothing else is more important than this. God sent His Son to the cross. He sent His Son to suffer and die on that cross and to bear the wrath of God against my sin, against your sin. We can be passionate and should be passionate about a lot of different things in life, but if there's anything we should be consistently passionate about, it's the gospel. And of course, at the center of the gospel is that cross. And we're not thinking only here about sharing the gospel with others. That's a commandment, okay, from Christ, and we should obey it. And we should be passionate about that too, even as Jim Grinnell highlighted so well last week in his message. But the foundation for anything, for anything that we have to share is that Christ died for our sins. That means our passion should be based on the gospel, thinking about it reflecting on its beauty. The gospel should mold and shape the way we look at everything, the way we look at ourselves, the way we look at the world. And the crux of the gospel is the cross of Christ. Jerry Bridges, one of my favorite authors, writes, the gospel is not only the most important message in all of history, it is the only essential message in all of history. Don Carson, a Bible scholar and seminary professor, writes this, I fear that the cross 
without ever being disowned is constantly in danger of being dismissed from the central place it must enjoy by relatively peripheral insights that take on far too much weight. Whenever the periphery is in the danger of displacing the center, we are not far removed from idolatry. The late John Stott also agrees, and he writes that all around us we see Christians and churches relaxing their grasp on the gospel, fumbling it, and in danger of letting it drop from their hands altogether. There's a word picture, fumbling, right? You don't have a firm grasp on it. Fumbling the gospel, losing our grip on the cross of Christ. What a thing to consider for those of us who are believers. We all face the temptation. We all face the temptation to move away from the gospel, even in the day-to-day of our daily lives, and to let it drop from our hearts and from our hands. There are three primary ways. We won't spend a lot of time with this, but three primary ways that this happens, that we begin to fumble the gospel. There's, first of all, subjectivism, which means we're basing our view of God on our changing feelings and our emotions rather than on the way he reveals himself in his word. So when we are subjective rather than objective. And then secondly, there's legalism, and that means we're basing our relationship with God on our own performance. Hey, I'm a good person. I do everything right. And then there's the opposite of that, which is condemnation, which means being more focused on our sin than on God's grace. So we can move away from the gospel in our lives. But the truth is that we never move on from the cross as if we grow into something deeper and the cross becomes somehow less important. We only move into a greater understanding of the cross of Christ. So when it comes to the cross, it's only when we hear the bad news of judgment that we can appreciate the good news of the gospel. It's only understanding that the shovel is missing. And we deserve judgment that we can appreciate the good news that God, through his son Jesus, has provided our salvation and full, ongoing forgiveness of sin. Quoting again C.J. Mahaney, the author of the book I mentioned, only those who are aware of God's wrath are amazed at God's grace. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. When we capture just a glimpse, just a tiny glimpse of how horrible our sin must appear in the eyes of a holy God, we have to ask, why are we still alive and breathing? Why are we still here? It's the cross of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ that's the heart of the gospel, and the cross makes the gospel good news. Jesus has died for me, for us. He stood in your place. He stood in my place before the judgment seat of God, and he took our sins upon himself. God did something on the cross that we could not possibly ever do for ourselves. If that does not persuade you of the love of God, what could possibly convince you? Now think about this. When you tell unbelievers, God loves you, isn't it interesting that so often they're not surprised or confused or stunned? 
even those who are not in Christ but believe in some sort of God kind of take it for granted that God loves them. We are all capable of taking this love for granted, and we will continue to do so until we learn to see ourselves more from God's perspective, through God's eyes. After all, he's God and we're not. And any such thinking about these kinds of things needs to start with him and not with us. To start with God means we must understand our condition in his eyes. Do we begin with God's perspective? Do we begin with his rights? Do we begin with his goals, what he has planned? Or do we begin with ourselves and our rights and our wishes? We must see ourselves as we were before Jesus took our sin upon himself. God cannot simply overlook or excuse sin. A price must be paid. We can pay it ourselves in eternal death. Or we can accept God's free gift through Jesus who paid the price for us. That's because Jesus' death is the final sacrifice which completely, absolutely satisfied God's demands against sinful people. And that averted his wrath from those who believe. That's us who are in Christ this morning. The blood of Christ satisfied God's justice And through faith, this death of Christ changes us. It changes us. It makes those of us who trust in him now, because we trust in him, because Jesus sees us through this lens, because God sees us through this Jesus lens, it makes us a friend with whom God can now have fellowship without any compromise of his own holiness. In other words, if you think about it, it's not the nature of God's that is changed. It's not the nature of God that's changed by the sacrifice of Jesus from one of hatred to one of love toward people. But it's the nature of the individual person that's changed. I guess you could say that in some ways Jesus makes us lovable. Jesus makes us lovable. We're not lovable apart from Christ. It's the great exchange, folks. It's the great exchange. Our sin for his righteousness. The forgiveness of sins is grounded finally not in my finite worth or work, but in the infinite worth of the righteousness of God, God's unswerving allegiance to uphold and vindicate the glory of his name. Let's ponder these things more often, folks. Let's not just save this kind of thought process for Holy Week, okay? Let's keep the main thing the main thing. The cross, the main thing, the crux. It is the main thing whether we recognize it or not, but let's endeavor to remember that the shovel is missing. Remember that we need this perfect sacrifice through Christ and that this is the crux of our very existence. And then let's not use that just to make us feel bad, but let's rejoice that because we trust in his sacrifice, our names are written in heaven in the Lamb's book of life because of the work of Jesus on the cross for you and for me. Amen? Dear Heavenly Father, we're grateful for the cross. We're grateful that it is indeed the crux of our existence. It's the central point. It's the main thing, Father. Help us to keep the cross at the crux of our lives, Father. 
Help us not to slip and to uh, lose our grip on it, Father, to fumble the gospel. Help us to, Father, remember that the shovel is missing and that we need the sacrifice of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But help us also to remember that because of that, that our names are written in the Lamb's book of life and that we can truly rejoice in that, Father. May that be the hallmark of our lives, Father. We recognize that it is central to everything we do, even the things we marked here this morning, Father, the VBS, Dave and Patty's years of service, John and Yuri's uh, years of service in Japan, Father. The cross is at the center of all those things, and it's the reason we're here this morning. Help us to never forget these things, Lord, and may they be more and more central to our lives, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.